Welcome to the forum at the LSC. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Miserable weather. Uh, my name is Beth Hannan and I'm the Associate Director of the forum. We're a non-profit organisation devoted to putting on philosophy events. We get philosophers and all sorts of other academics, thinkers, researchers, activists to uh, come out and talk about their research uh, so that you can find out what they're doing and you can quiz them about it as, as much as you like. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping matters. Uh, this is being recorded for a podcast, so if you do decide to ask a question, uh, please remember that your voice will be recorded for evermore and be put out into the internet. Uh, and do wait for the microphone to find you so that your voice is picked up and everyone in the room can hear you. Uh, as I say, we're a non-profit organisation, so we rely on the charity of the people who come to our events. If you'd like to donate to us, you can find a link to our Just Giving page uh, uh, on our website. And uh, we also uh, want to thank the LSE for all their support in putting on these events. That's enough for me. I'll hand you over to our panel for tonight's event. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to this forum event on prejudice. My name's Peter Dennis, and I teach in the philosophy department here at LSE. We've been meaning to do an event on prejudice uh, for quite some time, particularly in the light of recent political events, for example, the rise in reported hate crime after Brexit and the kind of divisive rhetoric that has come out of the American and, and now the French elections. But where to start? Uh, it's sometimes said that while universities have disciplines and departments, the real world has problems. And nowhere does that seem more true than in the case of prejudice. There are so many different angles we could try to tackle the problem of prejudice from. For example, there are the social scientific questions about what causes and gives rise to prejudice. Uh, there are the moral and ethical questions about what's wrong with prejudice. Uh, and then there are the sort of practical and political problems about what to do uh, about prejudice, uh, how to combat it, how to tackle it. So rather than choose any one of these particular angles, we decided to set up an interdisciplinary panel um, and to just sort of think aloud and discuss some of these aspects of, of the problem of prejudice so we've invited to my left uh, Marco Cinerella, who's Senior Lecturer in Psychology at uh, Royal Holloway University of London. Marco's actually coming back to the LSE after doing his PhD and BSc here. Uh, next to my left, uh, we have Catherine Jenkins, who's Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. And also we have Joe Mulhall uh, from the campaign group Hope Not Hate, and lastly, we have Amir Saeed, uh, who's Senior Lecturer in Journalism and Media at the University of Huddersfield. Um, Marco, perhaps I could turn to you first, uh, just to get us started on this question of what causes prejudice, uh, what gives rise to it? Sure. I think um, I'll make a few slightly controversial claims, probably, <laughs> during the evening. Um, but let me start with one. And, and the first one I'll make is that I think that there is a seed of prejudice that we're all probably born with. And for some of us, that seed gets watered and fed and it grows and it 
becomes fully-fledged prejudice. In others, we might learn to control it. But as a psychologist, what interests me is the interface between society and the individual. How do we understand that relationship? And in terms of that seed and why it is there, potentially in all of us, I think one of the things we can look to is, controversially, perhaps evolution. I think in some ways we're predisposed towards seeing a world in which there are us and them. And that, I think, predisposes us to value some categories of individuals more than others. It predisposes us to stereotype the world because another thing I think we tend to do is want to believe the world is predictable. And I think fear of the unknown is a a very basic thing that we're all familiar with, like fear of the dark or fear of spiders or snakes. It's something we're, we're kind of born with. And I think one of the ways in which prejudice, that seed of prejudice can develop is if we allow this fear of the unknown to become connected to the way we see other people. And if it does, then we will tend potentially to fear individuals, groups that we feel are different to us. We will tend to stereotype them. And in doing so, not only are we conquering this fear of the unknown and dealing with it, but we're also trying to simplify the world and create a sense of predictability to it. Unfortunately, we don't do that in an unbiased way. Because we put ourselves in some groups but not in others, we will tend to then create predictions and stereotypes about the world that favour us and the groups that we're a part of. And I think those are some of the processes that psychologists look at as well as broader societal things like the way the media chooses to represent different groups as well. But does that get us started? Yeah, yeah. So, you, so you would sort of locate prejudice in terms of a desire for predictability in the world? I, I think a desire for predictability and also thinking about filling a void which is created by threat. When we feel fear and when we feel threat, we seek ways to understand that. And I think one of the ways that we can understand fear and threat that we experience is to generate representations and stereotypes of others that, if you like, help us feel better about those threats because we can blame others and feel that those threats are, you know, because of them, it's not our fault. And and so it's also that process of dealing with uh, things that we find threatening in our environment. Is that something that others on the panel would agree with? Yeah, I mean, actually, rather boringly, I don't disagree. <laughs> um, but, I mean, that said, I mean, I think it take, takes us so far with that, you know. I mean, I think the predistrib- uh, predisposition towards prejudice, I think it probably is true that it exists. Um, however, in a more practical sense, I guess it's worth also looking at, of course, the societal and environmental causes, which, of course, you mentioned with the press, etc., but... I mean, I think a huge amount of research in this area about what causes prejudice, what are the drivers of this prejudice. And uh, lots of people continuously find things such as, indicators such as education, of course, um, economic deprivation, integration, all these things here, but much more kind of tangible societal, environmental issues that are kind of key drivers of levels of prejudice in communities, etc. So I think it's, of course, like all these things, it's not going to be one or the other. It's much more likely a combination of all these different things, you know. Mm. I think it can be helpful to think of prejudice not as an isolated 
problem or, or wrong that sort of happens by itself, but as part of a network of different issues and injustices. So you might think of prejudice, or I take it we're thinking of prejudice as something that's uh, that's kind of in someone's head or in someone's mind, right? So maybe it's one kind of common definition that I've found is that it's a negative, affective, or evaluative response towards members of social groups. So it's about how people respond to members of particular social groups, and it can operate through feeling, like emotions, affect, or through reasoning, evaluative and cognitive processes. But that very much locates it as a problem, as a, as a psychological issue, so as something that's happening in people's minds. And I think that that's obviously an important phenomenon, but it's closely related to some slightly different things. So one might be discrimination, which is now we've shifted from when we shift from talking about prejudice to discrimination, we've shifted from talking about what's in someone's mind to how have they acted in the world, what, what treatment has kind of gone on between between either, either two uh, agents, two actors, or also maybe kind of happen on an institutional level as well. And then taking it to an even sort of an even kind of bigger picture level, if you think that there are patterns of discrimination, then you might start to t- motivated perhaps by prejudice or perhaps by other factors as well, you might start to think in terms of oppression or of a kind of structural injustice. And, and that, I take it to be something like patterns of treatment um, of certain social groups that function to assign social groups sort of different social statuses. So, so a, a group that's oppressed is a group that's been assigned a subordinated or inferior social position within a structure, right? And so I think if you think about prejudice, situating it in that context, you can see that, you know, prejudiced attitudes on the part of individuals, probably something that's playing a causal role in contributing to those is the, the broader patterns that we've got going on and vice versa. Those patterns are partly held in place by individual attitudes among, I think, many other factors. So that's maybe a, a framework that could be helpful here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, what my colleagues have said there, I, I don't really disagree with at all. And uh, I hope that you can understand my accent as well. If you can't, it's because you lot are prejudiced towards, <laughs> towards Pakistani people because <laughs> I was born in Pakistan. Uh, and um, the thing is, my area is like racism, so it's one aspect of pre- prejudice, right? And I think that um, racism, as Marco said uh, in, in his definition, what racism does, it simplifies uh, complex issues, basically, you know, so it, uh, different types of racism simplify complex issues. So it's easy to turn around and say, I, all Muslims support ISIS, and let's not worry about how ISIS started, or, or, or all Muslims support the Taliban in, in some way or another, and, let, and let's forget the history of Afghanistan and what, what the British did and what was called the sort of great game, etc. So that it, it, simplifies, it simplifies these complex issues and really, it's to do with the, the thirst for power, basically, in my opinion. So, if you look at the history uh, um, between Europe and non-white populations of the world, prior to the Age of Empire, yes, there was differences, but nobody used the idea of colour, which, which kind of um, was a driving force around, it, around what's called race thinking. It was with the age of empire, when that came along, people turned around and said, guess what, these black people in Africa, because they are black, they are inferior. These brown people in Asia, because they are brown, they are inferior. These uh, oriental people in the Far East, because of, because of, of, of the colour of their skin, they are inferior. And, that, and they used the idea of colour 
to sort of justify their thirst for power, basically. And if you fa- and now, if you fast forward that to what I suggest, two thousand and three. Now, what did Tony Blair and George Bush say? They basically, I can, I, they basically said that when it came to the war in Iraq, it wasn't because these people were inferior. It was because these people, sorry, it wasn't because these people were physically inferior. It's because their culture was so, somehow different, and they had to be. They had to be. I think George Bush said they had to be given democracy, whilst two hundred years ago it was they had to be given civilization. You know, so like if, if you think about uh, Australia, I mean, what, one of the examples that I give is of Australia is uh, when when people when, when I was taught history at school, I was taught that Captain uh, was it James Cook discovered Australia. I mean, how racist is that? So you had all these Aborigines walking about going, "All right, mate, I can't talk to you right now. I've not been discovered yet," and they were all talking with a Scottish accent, uh, sorry, a Pakistani accent at the time. You know. But then along comes what you call this white man and says, guess what? I've discovered you. You're now, you're now allowed to exist. Or what happened with a lot of the, the, especially the Tasmanian Aborigines, be exterminated. So I think the idea of power is really, really important here. And the thirst for power. That's very so just to sort of summarise so far, and then we'll come yeah, to yeah. you. So it sort of started off with some individual causes of prejudice and sort of widened it out into the kind of social causes and, and Mia's just been talking about political causes of prejudice and yeah. Yeah actually I just wanted to come in on this issue of, of power and which I think is, you're right absolutely right on this um, as well as also the pursuit of power the perceived as currently now the perceived decline or relative decline of power um, is a key driver of certain prejudices. I mean a lot of the research we do at Hope Not Hate is with on groups within the far right Right? And there's whether or not it's the kind of so-called alt-right, whether or not it's the anti-Muslim counter-jihad movement, whether or not it's even the manosphere, the so-called kind of the anti-feminist movements. The huge amount of the rhetoric that you'll pick up through all of these groups, the commonalities, is this perceived notion of declining white power. Is you'll consistently hear them and say that actually we're the persecuted people now. And it's actually almost a relative decline. And this is, uh, again, people have done lots of work on this in terms of America, in terms of drivers of Trump. Um, it's not necessarily that these groups are less economically well off than, say, ethnic minority communities, but it's there is a perceived relative decline within them that's driving this sense of you know, bereavement almost about this declining white power. Um, and we see that time and time again as a driver of prejudice, you know. So I kind, of, I kind of agree, you know, it works on both sides. And I think that that sort of fits in with the idea of oppression as a structural phenomenon, because one thing that systems of oppression have to do if they're to perpetuate themselves is to seem natural, is to come to seem natural. Oh, we haven't created this system. This is just naturally how these groups, you know, you should fit. Sure. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, if you're trying to, if it's apparent to everybody involved that a system of oppression is a created artifact, that positions in it have been allocated fairly arbitrarily, it's not going to sustain, it's, it's been very difficult to sustain. Whereas if you can manage to make it seem like a natural phenomenon, like, oh, this just is the right way for women and men to live together or something like that, it's going to be a lot more appealing. And so that then creates a sense of entitlement, a sense that, well, it's always been this way or it's been this way for a while, and so that was how it's meant to be, and this change is not only us towards a better situation, but it's uh, taking something that I'm entitled to away from me, and I'm going to kick a big fuss about that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 
So individual causes of prejudice, social, political, are any of these causes sort of more important than another? I mean, is this a sort of place for agreement? We can, can we all agree that all of these causes are important or are some of them perhaps overemphasized or underemphasized? I mean, I think it's important to recognize that you know, while psychology speaks to, particularly to some of the individual causes, I think that message that prejudice is not an aberration, that actually we should perhaps see it as, as almost the normative state, and actually it's, it's unusual in some ways, um, and it takes effort to not be prejudiced, that we're almost programmed to be prejudiced. I think if we accept that, actually it means that governments can't use as an excuse this idea that you know, prejudice exists in the minds of individuals and so we're let off the hook. We, we, we can't do anything about it. Um, and so I think it's, it's important we shouldn't be prejudiced about the psychological approach, actually, because that is the message that, you know, because actually we're, we're all inclined to think in these ways... Um, you know, the, the reason that then prejudice fluctuates and waxes and wanes and manifests in the way that it does actually is more structural and, and societal. Mm-hmm. Right, because I, I suppose one of the kind of implicit criticisms of the psychological approach is that it places too much blame on the, the door of the individual, but if what you're saying is right, everybody is affected by these kinds of tendencies and therefore it's up to governments and society to try to, to mitigate it. Actually, I mean, because that's the question I was going to ask you, actually, was that um, is there not a danger, of course, that if we place too much emphasis on the individual or any or kind of psychological or even evolution, that we negate the importance of societal issues? You know, and, you know, so it was, that was going to be my question for you anyway. So Do you feel your worry is kind of assuaged by that response? Yeah, well, ish. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, I'm not specifically talking about you, but, I mean, I'm generally within these debates... Um, Sure. Uh, I, I sometimes get somewhat tetchy about placing too much emphasis, shifting too much away from environmental or social drivers. Or, you know, it's not to say, that, of course, there's not some fascinating stuff and some really important work there. It's just that um, it's very difficult to measure, I guess, the individual and what's going on in someone's head versus being able to actually plot on a graph, say, uh, levels of support for the extreme far-right parties against levels of economic deprivation, for example. That's much more tangible. If you're affecting to do something about it, of course... But, um, yeah. yeah, I very much agree. And I think that as well as keeping a sort of understanding of prejudice that's, that's broad enough to include that in mind, I think it's also important sometimes to recognise when prejudice isn't the concept that we need. So sometimes I think that it's very um, convenient and maybe even quite a safe narrative to be able to say, uh, well, there's injustices happening, and I'm going to lay that at the door of prejudiced individuals. Mm-hmm. It sort of gets us out of the need to create a more far-reaching change, as people have, as people have suggested. Um, but sometimes we just haven't got the evidence to really kind of bring home a charge of prejudice, right? So suppose you have a case where um, someone who's been convicted of a crime receives the very harshest sentence you possibly could, and suppose that person is a member of a stigmatized group, perhaps they're an immigrant, right? So if you want to say, oh, that judge was prejudiced when they handed out that sentence, well, you then need to have evidence about the mental states of that person, and that could be quite tricky. So then you might shift to discrimination. You might say, well, look at all these other cases where the person wasn't an immigrant, but the case was relevantly similar, and the judge handed down a much more lenient sentence. So that might have that shift from prejudice to discrimination 
might also help. But then again, obviously, you might have a situation where the relative sort of examples for comparison are just not quite available in the, in the right way that you would need. And then you might need to bring in something more like a notion of, of structural discrimination or of a, of a systemic problem. Um, so, you, so you might say, well, uh, you know, abstracting from the specifics of this case, what we do have is statistics that say on average for the same crime, members of this group receive you know, a harsher sentence, right? And so choosing the right concept for the evidence that you have and the kind of uh, point that you want to make is important. And sometimes that's prejudice and sometimes it's maybe a different concept in the vicinity, perhaps. And I think a really good example of that, actually, is, um, for instance, if you take something like the Notting Hill riots in the late 50s, mm. um, quite often it's often been written up in the historiography as this kind of aberration caused by a small group of prejudiced people that engaged in this sort of thing, rather than placing it in a much broader yeah. context of a societal, a structural prejudice or a structural discrimination. Um, and actually I think now with time, the historiography as the archives are opening up are showing that that actually was the case, rather than being a small group of you know, fascists, etc., running around the streets, it was actually the result of a much broader societal problem, you know. But I think that's always been the case, though, right? It's dead easy to turn around, especially again with racism, to turn around and say uh, the racists are the far right, it's the National Front, it's the British National Party, it's the English Defence League, but, but the Daily Mail, all we do is that we just produce common sense, basically. You know, that's all we do. We're not racist because... It, and and then, the, then the Daily Mail can turn around and say, oh, can you remember in 1995 that they turned around and called the five, the five boys murderers uh, who killed Stephen Lawrence, that proves that we're not racist. Yet then at the same time uh, uh, you'll have the government turning around and making it harder and harder for non-white people to come into Britain. So if you go back to the Notting Hill riots uh, in 1958 I think it was, at the same time uh, um, uh, there was a a Labour MP who turned around and actually said that um, uh, sh- should, should there be a position in Britain? And he actually raised a question where, uh, uh, where if you allow too many black men into Britain, uh, uh, should Britain be... A, 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 should, would that not allow white women to end up sleeping with black men? And, and is that good for British society? And, and I can't remember the actual wording of the question, but he actually raised that in the Houses of Parliament. He said, and, do we want it to be a mulatto nation? Yeah, you know, and it's, you know, so on the one hand, you've got people doing that, and it still happens right now. All you've got to do is pick up the Daily Mail. You've got people turning around and calling migrants cockroaches and vermin. And then, and then you sort of wonder why uh, uh, racism exists. And it's a... But it's, it's dead easy to turn round and like uh, uh, Gordon Brown turned round and I think it was nineteen sorry about ten years ago and said British jobs for British workers. Where does that leave me? Because I was born in Pakistan. So like, where does that? I mean, have I taken have I taken a job from a so-called British person? I mean, so my existence is getting questioned there. Basically, you know, I mean, I think it was James Baldwin, the sort of writer, who said that people like me are. Um, uh, tried, convicted, persecuted at the womb. And, and that's, that's how I felt when, when I read that statement. I was like, geez, where does that leave people like me? British jobs for British workers. What the hell does that mean? You know, it means quite simply uh, uh, British jobs for white people. You know, but he's not going to turn around and say that because his PR people are saying, oh, that's a bit dodgy, by the way, big man. He probably wouldn't say big man at the end of that. And that's why I'm not in PR. Sorry. You know, but, but like, it gives, you know, it's easy to turn around and say, you know, racism, prejudice is homophobia, is 
is certain individual people with individual problems, and let's ignore the power structure, basically. So, Amir, would you tend to have a sort of picture of individuals being, on the face of it, sort of neither prejudiced nor unprejudiced, but with institutions or media outlets being the principal sort of cause of prejudice, maybe whipping up prejudice where it's not there. And maybe that's a bit of a caricature of your view, sort of slightly, but yeah. I wonder whether that contrasts with maybe a caricature of Marco's well, view. Well, I, I like that, you know, prejudice is there, it's in the individual, and it's just sort of waiting for an opportunity to come out. Yeah, well, I like Marco's idea of, of the seed, you know, where, where, like, you know, a certain prejudice might come out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I've always thought of myself as non-racist, but undoubtedly I had other prejudices. I did. You know, and I, I'll admit it. I mean, I can remember like, the first time that I f- physically met a gay guy and became friends with him. I was like, whoa, he's gay. And then I had all these stereotypes in my head about gay people. And then it just completely shattered. You know what I mean? And then I re- to me, homophobia is the same as racism. You know, now it's the same kind of structures which, which cause that. And like, um, there is, there, but there is an agency there then. You know what I mean? There could have been an agency with myself where I might have decided to read homophobic uh, writers and become homophobic, but but luckily I didn't do that. You know what I mean? Uh, and you know and like and because to me I've always questioned the media. Full stop. Um, Malcolm X, my hero, basically said that you have to be careful of the hero because they end up um, making you love the people whom whom you should hate and hating the people whom you should love. You know and uh, I think agency is really important here. And, and it's how that gets nurtured or developed, basically. I agree with that, actually. And, I mean, there's a, uh, some really interesting stuff about these what, tri- so-called triggers that, that, that do that to someone, that you can have a number of these... Uh, predis- like, you can have a predis- you know, everyone has their predisposition towards prejudice, but then you also have a number of these external factors. But often it takes a trigger of some form, whether or not that could be a negative interaction with a person uh, of a different colour or who's homophobic, etc., uh, sorry, who's gay. And so sometimes you see these things that are called these triggers that set off these internal prejudices. But, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I don't disagree. I think, if I may, I mean, I've got an interesting example of, of, of that idea of a, a trigger, and I think it demonstrates how we are a, a bit predestined to, to think in this way. Um, I, I mean, my own father experienced something interesting many years ago when he went for an interview in a town in England, and when he returned home, the, the, the strongest thing he could remember about this employment interview was the fact that somebody had spat on him um, from the top deck of a bus. And uh, he immediately made the assumption that this person spat on him because of their ethnicity and because of his ethnicity. And that, for him, was a trigger. There, there was an extremely unpleasant event and he had a choice about how to explain it and I think sadly as human beings we have this tendency to explain unpleasant events uh, in in ways that like this so it's just too easy to say well you know that happened to me because of my background and he he did that to me because of his background and I think uh, you know, there are many similar trigger events going on. And, of course, the media now triggers uh, things as, as well. I mean, I, I don't want to hog the microphone, but I, I, I was struck um, very recently. I had to come to London and uh, take a black cab ride. 
and the uh, cabbie decided that it was perfectly acceptable to uh, launch into a tirade about Muslims. I'm not quite sure why, why, th- why he, he thought I was um, a, a good uh, uh, receptive target for this, especially given that I'm a prejudiced researcher. <laughs> it was a little bit ironic that he chose to do this, but um, as well as um, labelling all Muslims as terrorists, he then went on to talk about Muslims being sex offenders in, in, as well. Um, but what interested me was that he thought it was a legitimate environment. I think this was perhaps the day after the incident on, on, on the bridge, the terrorist incident on the bridge recently in London. And so he thought this was, this legitimised uh, this, this kind of uh, discussion. I found it interesting, though, the assumption that because I was a white person, uh, it would be acceptable to talk in this way. Mm. I thought for a minute there, Marco, you were going to say you managed to enlist him for one of your studies as a research <laughs> participant. <but laughs> it wasn't the back of my mind. I suppose mind. that might be yes. unethical. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to move us on, um, if, uh, if I can, to the, the ethical question uh, of prejudice. Um, just naively, what's wrong with prejudice? Or perhaps more in a more kind of philosophical way, what kind of wrong is prejudice? Um, is it different to other wrongs, what kinds of harms does it produce um, and how are we supposed to understand that in more normative and moral vocabulary and terminology than, than we've been using so far. Perhaps, Catherine, you could start us off. Sure. Thank you. So one way of taking this question is to think about what kind of a wrong does someone suffer when they're on the receiving end of prejudice? So if you're on the receiving end of prejudice something wrongful, something sort of morally unacceptable has happened to you, what kind of unacceptability is that, right? Well, we tend, to, we tend to think that way about prejudice, right? So one kind of wrong, I think, that's associated with prejudice is what you might think of as an extrinsic wrong, so it's a wrong to do with the consequences. So often prejudice, sometimes prejudicial treatment can be very fleeting. It can be, you know, a, very, a passing interaction, you know, on the street, but sometimes it can be in the context of a very weighty decision, whether that's in a criminal court or in, like, an employment process or something like that. So sometimes uh, prejudice can have consequences that are very wrongful. But I think the very fact of being treated in a prejudiced way is also harmful kind of in and of itself, taken sort of detached from its consequences. I think we can also say that that's wrongful and harmful. So one thing I'm interested in as a philosopher is what kind of a wrong is that? What's going on there? So one thing I think is involved is a kind of unfairness, so a kind of procedural wrong, like you've been given less than your due, you've been treated less well than the next person. So certainly I think there's something, something about unfairness going on there. But I sort of would want to take that a little bit further. I think that's not the whole story of what's wrong about being treated in a prejudiced way. I think there's also what we might think of as a kind of communicative wrong, so a message that's sent that's, that's harmful. So I think when someone sort of treats you in a prejudiced way, there's a kind of slight or insult involved. Um, you've kind of been singled out for inferior treatment on the basis of a group membership. That's kind of stigmatizing. It's, I think, quite a powerful form of disrespect. It's a failure to kind of recognize you in a way you should have been recognized, to recognize you as the sort of person who merits equal treatment, who has that kind of entitlement, that kind of moral standing. So I think in that sense, um, 
an act of uh, an act that displays or indicates prejudice can be quite a weighty kind of wrong, even if it doesn't particularly have bad consequences, because it communicates this disrespect. And obviously, that kind of disrespect can spread outwards to from an individual to a group. It's clear what the group membership is that's the basis of the prejudice treatment of an individual. I think that kind of ripples outward to affect the whole kind of standing of that group, right? In a cumulative way, obviously. But I think that's why when you have maybe a very high profile of prejudicial treatment against a member of a particular group, it has a knock-on effect for other people sort of in that group as well. And it can then kind of trigger other incidents as well. So that's one way of thinking about the wrong of prejudice, I think. Thank you. Would other people... Can I ask a question, actually, off the back of that? Sure. I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is, does the effect of the act of prejudice matter, or is it the prejudice itself that is the problem? And I I ask this because I was asked by a student the other day uh, during an interview for their master's about anti-fascism, actually, and they said, does it matter if, say, two white racists in a pub are having a conversation that no one else hears, and they're saying extremely racist things. So a fascist joke in a forest. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, essentially, but does that matter less than, say, if one of them turns around and says it to a black person? Or is the act in and of itself, is this a universal issue? I.e., the moment one says it, it's, that's it. Or is it that one, there, is le- there is levels here, i.e., two white people being racist to each other is not as bad as a, ro- a person saying something racist to a black person? Does the, does the effect, if you will, of it uh, matter when you're attempting to work out in terms of uh, the rights and wrongs of prejudices? Are there levels to this, or is it universal? That's a really fascinating question. So one, one, what that, I think, raises is the idea of are we locating the moral badness of prejudice in the kind of the attitude that the individual who's prejudiced has, or are we locating it in the effect on the person at whom the prejudice is directed. Um, I'd probably say both. Uh, it sort of depends what kind of perspective you want to take on, on ethical wrongs in general, but I think, I think there's, there's grounds to say both, right? So uh, if you are the p- a sort of person who's willing to speak in prejudiced ways and have kind of unchecked prejudiced attitudes, but you're just quite secretive about it, I still think that says something about your moral character that's you know, not, not good. Um, but then it seems to me, at least, that something some extra moral badness has been added to the situation once you put in somebody who's, who hears those words, who is affected by them. Um, yeah, so I always want to say both. I agree. Okay. <laughs> I think it's an interesting question, and I think um, you know, one of the interesting things to consider as well is where, where do we draw the line? Where are the boundaries of an acceptable prejudice an unacceptable one. I mean, are there some prejudices that wouldn't worry us and some that would, and, and, and why is that? You know, I mean, I can probably admit to being a bit prejudiced towards fans of Justin Bieber, for example. So um, d- does it matter? Am I committing a moral wrong? Uh, I, I think as a psychologist, I would probably say that if uh, those Justin Bieber fans are not harmed by what I think of them, then perhaps there is no moral wrong. But that's, that's an interesting question. And, of course, there's lots of evidence that people are dramatically damaged just 
by having the knowledge of prejudice. And you, I'm, some of my own work has looked at homophobia and many, many examples there of sort of massive damage that can be caused, not even by explicitly experiencing discrimination, but by fearing it and yeah, just the expectation that others will hold certain views of you um, can carry, put a massive weight on somebody's shoulders. Um, I, I, uh, I found that question really, really tough because I wanted to actually say, well, what's right with it? Everything's wrong with it, you know. And, like, uh, I've just, last year, I, I used um, feminist ideas to look at the idea of racism and Islamophobia from a personal perspective. I know this is not meant to be non, it's meant to be non-academic, but briefly, feminist methodologies basically say it's good to bring in the personal. You know, it's good because it can raise more ideas. So the only way that I can try to see what's wrong about this is talk about it from a personal point of view. And, like, it's, it's, I feel very hesitant saying this cause to a whole bunch of uh, strangers. But, and it's a bit strange because I'm, I'm sitting here as a senior lecturer in media studies, really cool job, loads of money. I get paid to talk about Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and hip-hop music and stuff like that. But that's not what I wanted to do. When I was seven, I wanted to be a football player. And it was because of racism, really, on the football pitch that that stopped. Then I wanted to be a boxer because Muhammad Ali is my hero, but that was God's fault. He only made me five foot six. And I wanted to be the heavyweight champion of the world. And then, like, it just... It's not individual acts. That's, how can I say this? Racism... It's the microaggressions. It's every single day. It's stuff which I can't approve, right? But I know that when I was growing up, that I'd walk into a shop and people didn't want to serve me, okay, because of the colour of my skin. I would see people not sitting next to me on the train, especially when my mum was dressed in a shalwar kameez. You know, then it was really uh, abrupt. And then, I mean, I remember reading Malcolm X, and there's a bit where Malcolm X talks about, like, the how black people hated him. And I hated myself. Absolutely hated myself. When I was 16 and 17, and when I discovered girls, I, I know girls always existed, but like that's <laughs> when you sort of discover them when you get to that age and your hormones got crazy. Right. And I was like, Shh. sorry, I nearly, I nearly swore. I didn't swear. Right, okay. But like, I was like, crikey, if I say to girls, I'm Pakistani, they're going to go, go away. And I used to say to girls, oh, by the way, I'm Italiano. Believe it or not, I used to hide my ethnicity. I used to hide it. That's prejudice. You know what I mean? And it was constant and ongoing. And it was like every aspect of your life is consumed by it. You don't know. I mean, you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know where, it's, where, where it is. And the weird thing is, is that the verbal, like getting called a, a, a black so-and-so, and I've even been called an Ethiopian. I've been called a Somalian. I've been called an African. I've been... One time I was even called a chinky. Right, okay, it's, I've been called them all in Scotland, and that, that doesn't bother me. But what bothers you is that when you walk into a room, and it's, it's what some, I think psychologists call uh, aversive racism, where people turn their back on you and don't give you the time of day. And, and it's kind that's... Um, my ex-wife is white, um, white Irish, and we've got, we've got a little daughter, right? And it really got to me. About two years ago, she came back from nursery, 
and her name is Leela, and she was going, Mummy is white, Daddy is brown, and I'm white. And that's what she said to me. And I was like, jeez, how do you say to a two-and-a-half-year-old that, did you know that Daddy had six cigarettes stuffed in his hand when he was seven? You know, because of racism. Did you know that uh, there's certain jobs that Daddy applied for and people just said, no? You know what I mean? And how do you, how do you get that across? How do you get this feeling of constant inferiority, basically, right? And the only way I can say it, if, if, I, want, if I want an easy life, if I wanted an easy life, I wish I was white. You know, I wish I was white. And that's, that's what's wrong with prejudice. That's what's wrong with it. I mean, even now, I'm a senior lecturer in media studies. I've, wrote and, I've written loads of stuff and all this kind of stuff, right? And if, if I wanted an easy life, I wish I was white. I wish I did have red hair sitting in a bucket. It was called Willie, like most you people think what Scottish people do. Right, OK, I kind of wish that a wee bit. Unfortunately, you know, I've kind of realised that that is not the case. And um, I've turned that on its head now. And I've now realised that in the words of Stevie Wonder, I'm dark and lovely and most of you people are pink and pasty and ill-looking. <laughs> I think one of the things that comes across in that um, what, part of what you said is the sort of systemic nature of prejudice. So we sort of ask this question, what's wrong with it? What kind of wrong is it? It's very different to something like theft, which has a perpetrator and a victim. It's something that affects and tracks an individual throughout their life, throughout all kinds of different contexts. And I think that's one reason it's very important to make a distinction between prejudice that's part of a system of oppression and prejudice that isn't. So the prejudice, you know, having a a bad stereotype of Justin Bieber fans, you know, it just seems like we're talking about... Of course, there's a sense of prejudice that applies both to that and to racial prejudice. But it's a very thin, it's only in a very thin sense in which we're talking about the same thing there. And and when we try and talk about what's wrong with that, we need to recognize that a lot of what's wrong with instances of prejudiced behavior that are part of a broader system of oppression is precisely that they are part of that system and that they are building on each other to create these very profound harms, this sort of psychological harms, cumulative harms shaping the directions that people's lives take. And so the question of what's, what's the kind of wrong that's involved in prejudice depends to a great degree of like, well, what kind of prejudice do you have in mind when you ask that question? I'm not sure how much that's sensible. I'm not sure how much there is that's sensible that we can say about prejudice merely like as such or in the abstract. Thank you. I want to uh, throw it open to audience questions uh, now. There is going to be another Q&A towards the end, um, but if you do have a question now, please could you raise your hand and we'll make sure that the mic comes to you. If you can wait uh, until the mic comes to you, there's a lady in the middle I've just seen, uh, then that would be great. Then you'll be on the podcast. Uh, If you can keep your hands up, then we'll take a couple of questions uh, in succession, if that's all right. So we'll start with a lady with a hand up in the middle. And we'll come here and and there. Hi, uh, thank you. That was really interesting. And I really, I thought what you said about um, it's dangerous to put too much emphasis on the individual rather than society was really interesting and really true. Um, I think someone said that. (laughs) Um, But I wonder if... And I definitely agree that it, societal prejudice is a, is a massive issue and, and it's mainly that that's the problem. Um, if we're putting all the emphasis on structural 
prejudice, then how can we stop individual people who are prejudiced kind of getting away with it and, you know, it's not me, it's society, it's not my fault I have these views and it's not my fault I act on them because it's society's fault and it's the media. Thank you very much. We'll take a, another question consecutively, if that's okay, and we'll, we'll try to answer all of these uh, together. There's a, a gentleman uh, at the front and the lady next to him. Thank you. Um, in my mind, there seems to be uh, a confusion between prejudice and discrimination, and I wonder um, what the panel think is the difference. Um, I get the feeling that the gentleman is concentrating completely on racism. I say this because I'm not British and I experience prejudice, not only here by people thinking that I married the Brit because I was uh, thinking as a, a saving grace but also in my own country where I was at school in a well-off to do with a scholarship and people really treated you inferior because you didn't contribute any money. So are we confusing issues here, which is it's a very similar question. Um, are we, the, the impression I got on this case it was that prejudice only happens on one into one group. I don't think it does. What is the panel's view? Thanks, that's very clear. And uh, a gentleman on the right in the second row. Hi, thank you. My question is that whether you agree with me or not that the cause of prejudice, regardless of the type, where it goes, is our previous experiences. And it plays a main role, I would say, undermines all the other elements our previous experiences shapes our prejudice and that could have different reasons and the main reason is that I'll go back to David Hume's experience of is and ought that we always think that things are going to be the way which it was rather than thinking that things could go to a different direction so then as a result lack of experience or having a different experience and not believing things could go different direction would cause prejudice. I was wondering whether you agree with this point or not. Thank you. Well, just to sort of summarise those questions, and then I'll invite the panel just to jump in uh, as, and, as, and, as and where they, uh, they would like. So the first question was uh, whether or not an emphasis on societal structures can absolve individuals who might be prejudiced. The second question asked about what the difference between prejudice and discrimination is. The third question asked about whether certain kinds of groups in society who are victims of prejudice might be concentrated on and emphasised perhaps more than others. And the last uh, question asked us to agree or, or disagree with the view that it's really past experience, most of all, that causes prejudice. So over, t over to you, panel. Joe. Yeah, um, uh, actually, I could kind of talk about the... Two, the first two questions, really. Um, I'd quite like to make explicitly clear. No, I mean, I don't think it's possible to exalt the individual uh, at all. And actually, it's something we were going to come on to in a second, I think, when we were going to talk about what we might do about prejudice or, or fight back against prejudice. I think sometimes uh, you're absolutely right that we can't solely talk about structures. 
right? Um, there is an, in, in feeds into this are those who have prejudiced views and then those who act on them and those what might become called you know, discriminators. They act on those prejudiced views. And part of the people that we would say look at, at hope not hate in terms of the people are people that have prejudices, they act on them, and the way they act on them they, they seek to exploit the environmental and social factors that drive other people's prejudices. So I don't think you can disconnect any of these things and say that there's either structures or there's either the individual. I think there is a, a key role in society is played by those people that seek to exploit those environmental and structural problems uh, to in the end of their own prejudices. So and then I guess I'd come on to that second point is that I guess discrimination in my mind is acting upon the, 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 the turning of into actual action rather than just having a personal prejudice. But I'm not sure about the academic definitions between the two. Maybe as a philosopher, I feel like it's my duty to come in on the definitional question of prejudice versus discrimination. So I would broadly agree, right, that prejudice is about a mental state and discrimination is about an action. But I wouldn't personally want to define discrimination as acting on prejudice because I think you can have discrimination without prejudice. So you can have a... Suppose that you have a system that sort of says... um, Maybe you have a system in a workplace where only women are entitled to take parental leave and anyone who's been absent for more than six months in the last three years isn't really considered for promotions, right? You wouldn't need anybody in that situation to have like negative attitudes towards women explicitly or implicitly for that to be a situation in which women are on the receiving end of discrimination because it's a pattern of treatment that creates a systematic disadvantage for members of one (coughs) social group so yes I think prejudice as a kind of um a mental state, a kind of attitude, and discrimination as an action that has a disproportionately negative impact on some group, where discrimination can be motivated by prejudice in some cases, but not necessarily, I think, in all cases. Can I just pick up on a couple of those points? I mean, I think, is it my fault if society is, is prejudiced anyway, this, this kind of, is the individual absolved is an interesting one. I think there's an obvious category uh, where you perhaps could absolve individuals, and that is children. And uh, developmental psychologists will tell you that children will tune into the prejudices of the parents, of, of peer group, and, and present in the media long before they hold the concept of what prejudice is. Uh, and, and, and so... You know, if, we, if we do feel that the media bombard us with prejudiced images and words, then children are exposed to these, and partly through their parents as well, from a very early age. And it, it's very easy to see children in the playground picking up on these prejudices and the ideas about, you know, girls and boys shouldn't play together. And I, I can speak to this as a parent with two boys at primary school um, who are uh, acutely aware of, of some of these uh, issues. Uh, So I I think we can perhaps absolve some people, but also there are some circumstances and societies in which prejudice is so endemic that actually individuals embedded within that can't see the wood for the trees either. So um, as an outsider, we can look and and see that this is problematic, but actually as an insider, perhaps individuals under those circumstances don't always feel that's a problem. Um, I think just to speak to one question that hasn't been addressed, which was uh, does previous experience shape our prejudice? I think one of the interesting things is how willing we are to hold prejudice towards groups and individuals whom we may have never encountered. So I'd like to be a bit controversial and say, well, actually, I'm not sure previous experience is 
the sole cause, because if you look at the rise of Islamophobia, for example, I'm sure there are many individuals in, in the UK and other countries who don't have daily interactions with people of a Muslim faith, but are willing to hold quite pejorative views towards them. And so it's not coming from direct experience. It's coming from something else. If you could speak into the mic, then we, we want you onto the, on the podcast. Even in that case, I think it is a silly experience, not necessarily individual experience, but experience of the society as a whole, which would go into the individual and would dominate the climate, I would say. Because even what they say about the Muslim people, of course, not everyone has interacted with Muslim people, but government tries to dominate based on the previous experiences. I think we can't ignore the role of experience. Because uh, I support my argument by saying that children have no prejudice because they have no previous experiences. Until they learn, they try, and then they start to prejudice. Let's just give Marco the, the right to reply, and then we'll, we'll move on. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to hold the microphone. I think we're possibly talking about semantics here, and I think we're just perhaps defining experience some, somewhat differently, although there is the, the, the vicarious experience, sure, of, of, of media and, and, and you know, what your parents have experienced, which gets passed on to you in that way. So I think if we have a broader definition of experience beyond just what you've personally encountered, then I think actually we, do, we don't disagree. Okay, I want to uh, move us on uh, a bit now to the more positive uh, and programmatic uh, part of the evening where we're going to be thinking about what can be done about uh, prejudice. Joe, you're the obvious person to call on uh, here, representing Hope Not Hate. Uh, could you speak to us a little bit and kick off our discussion on this question? Yeah, the, the simple question of us sent is, what can we do about prejudice? Very simple. Well, five minutes and we'll fix it. Um, I'll just start by saying, actually, I like Justin Bieber, so I'm just going to put that out there, <laughs> just because I need to stand We've up. We've got to go to dinner <laughs> <later>. <laughs> What is to be done? I mean, okay... Very briefly. I mean, what I'm going to talk about, I guess, is essentially one of the tactics that we as an anti-racism organisation use, but we use it against a number of different prejudices uh, to come onto it. It's not just racism. Um, in some senses, what a lot of we deal with is less the structural issues and more the kind of day-to-day -day kind of lower-level individual-to-individual sort of things, but n not necessarily just that. So I guess the key thing I would say is, is understanding the best way to defeat prejudice is to understand what causes it of course that's why something like this is so interesting it's simple to say um, although there's aspects of the anti-racism movement that perhaps don't think that but um, what we essentially have to do is we have to identify the drivers of prejudice and then we have to work out of all the things that cause these problems which ones can we do something about there are some of them that from an organization like ours or from an individual it's very difficult to do anything about what we have to do is identify what causes it then identify which ones we can do something about and then how we do it now i'd broadly say that this should be done or can be done in something of a, a pincer attack that draws a distinction if you will between those that you might call the discriminators, those individuals that are pushing a narrative of prejudice in a political sense, and those that, say, have prejudiced views. And you deal with them differently in some ways. So if we take the first one, those that you might say, and I'm not just talking about the far right, I'm talking about any individual or organisation which attempts to push politics of prejudice, the things that we have to do there is we have to find every single way we can oppose them. Now, that could be from uh, an electoral sense that we see uh, in terms of Europe and North America at the moment. Uh, and increasingly, actually, I think we've become better at 
challenging the politics of prejudice through an electoral sense. The anti-fascist movement and the anti-racism tradition have become much better in the last 15 years of fighting on an electoral plane, in Britain at least. Um, but key to this also is increasing the social cost of activism, prejudiced activism. Um, make, making sure that there is a difference between just having a view and realising that should one engage in pushing that view or affecting that on someone else or pushing those ideas, um, there will be a major social cost for you. Now, that could be a legal cost, etc., but that could also be p- exposing these people, making sure that people know that they're engaging in these sorts of politics. So in one sense, you might look at this as a pincer, as in we kill the mosquito, but we also we have to drain the swamp from which the mosquitoes come. And here this is about looking at some of those societal and environmental drivers and seeing what we can do here. And key to this has been, from a hope not hate perspective, is going back into these communities that have been identified as at risk, um, quite often post-industrial, quite often economically deprived, going back and attempting to realise that one of the key things we find time and time again in terms of people that go from just having a prejudice to becoming an activist is a sense of complete hopelessness. This is what we find so important, is this notion that nothing will change and that they have no ability to change this, and attempting to go back into communities and empowering them, and attempting to actually listen to them is a first step. I think for a huge amount of time in a lot of these communities, we've seen in the last, as we've seen the kind of rise of populism since the early 90s across Europe, you see time and time again communities that have been utterly ignored, often by social democratic parties that were supposed to say they listened to them. Uh, What we have to do is go back into those communities. We have to listen to them. We don't have to just scream Nazi at them. We actually have to attempt to engage with them in some sort of meaningful sense. So I don't want to hog the mic, so very briefly, as I say, it's about this pincer thing. It's about attacking these people who prejudice or or peddle the politics of prejudice uh, and attempting to undermine them and attempting to, in some sense, destroy the organisations which they create and then simultaneously identifying the societal and environmental drivers and attempting to then deal with those problems. And I think together, I mean, that's not going to solve racism this week, but together those two things, I think, is a way of marginalising the impact of prejudice. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I think I agree with uh, everything that you said there. Psychologists, uh, I think, are somewhat pragmatic in looking at this issue of what we can do about prejudice. And I think, again, it would be an opportune moment to come back to children. I think that there's a feeling among psychologists that... Uh, once we get to a certain age, we're quite stuck in our ways. And so I think that if we can tackle something like prejudice in children, I think that is certainly one of the things we need to think about very carefully. I think one of the dilemmas we face is something like the media. I mean, we we value freedom of speech in, in many countries, but... As social scientists, we often point the finger at the media as a driver of prejudicial stereotypes and so on. If we look at the case of Islamophobia, for example, uh, the media certainly can be brought to account. Yet we're very reluctant. We stop short of wanting to tackle issues like that head-on and saying, you know, should you be more responsible? So what psychologists have tended to do is... um, instead try and encourage things such as a, a critical awareness of media. And I guess it fits into this whole idea of you know, questioning fake news, which we, people are talking about now. And I think if you can instill in children uh, a sense of a healthy scepticism towards things like the media, that is a good starting point. And to recognise that prejudice, again, is not something we should be embarrassed about talking uh, to uh, about it's not something we should feel is uh, in a few select uh, 
individuals in society. It's widespread. We should be happy to admit it's in all of us. And really, I think, try and understand that we don't want to uh, allow prejudice to flower into something like discrimination. But in doing so, we have to accept that it, it is something quite natural. But I think uh, a critical media awareness is, is, a, is a good starting point. So I think one thing I wanted to say leads quite nicely on from that. So I very much agree with what's been said. Um, just to add, a lot of our prejudices can be implicit. I think that sort of psychological research rather than philosophical research, so do correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the time people can have um, stereotypes and sort of a cognitive associations that operate below the level of conscious awareness. So someone might have a stereotype um, that kind of links women in the home and links men in the workplace, but isn't really aware that they have that stereotype or wouldn't sort of say that women, you know, should belong in the home and when should men should belong in the workplace. But if they're, for example, making a, an employment decision, it might just seem to them that this man is a, feels, feels like a better fit for this job than this woman, and they can't really say why. And that would be an example where an implicit prejudice is in operation. So obviously there are things that we can do to find out about our implicit prejudices. There are really interesting tests you can take online and, and things that we can do to try and reduce them. But in the meantime, I think one thing that's very important is creating organizational structures that block off the opportunities for prejudice, whether explicit or implicit, to result in a sort of a discriminatory decision. So things like, for example, anonymizing certain parts of process, so anonymizing... Um, like review of articles for academic journals is one important thing. Another thing is um, having very clear criteria in advance, so not just leaving it up to a panel to sort of see who seems like the best fit, but to sort of agree, cause, because what studies have shown is that, you know, what will happen is that people will adapt the criteria to make it the case that it, they point towards the candidate that's sort of meeting, uh, fitting in with their prejudices, right? So having very clear criteria in advance for important decisions. And so those all seem like quite tame, tame measures we face this very, very dramatic problem. But I think there are actually some quite sort of... Um, sort of structural changes that are not particularly costly to implement and are not particularly like difficult that can have an effect in not solving not removing the court not like removing prejudice per se but limiting the opportunities for it to result in discrimination i think those are important too thanks amir um, um just to kind of go back a wee bit if you don't mind right I'm sorry that I was talking about racism, but that's my kind of area, right, okay, and I feel more comfortable talking about that, right, but the one thing that I'd point out is that there's not, in my opinion, there's not, which, there's not one universal definition of what we can say is racism. What you have is racisms, which I think are dependent upon place and situation as well. So the racism uh, uh, experienced by a Palestinian lady living in the West Bank Right, it's different from the racism experienced by a 17-year-old black male uh, being confronted by white police officers in the USA, but the core elements are still there. You know, that, that there, is, there is prejudicial thinking, that, that, and that's still there, and, and that can change upon situation. I mean, one of the saddest things that, that I've seen in the last couple of years is seeing British Asians complain about Eastern Europeans going, they're taking our jobs, etc., and I'm like, gee whiz, come on. That's what was happening to us in the 1970s and 80s, you know. So how do you overcome it? And, talk, and uh, the colleague at the end talked about experiences, right? Well, I know myself, right, okay, that I've looked at my experience of racism, right, and then I've went, 
how could I possibly be anti-Jewish? You know, because what the Jews suffered, has a suffering right now, and has he suffered in the 1930s, was parallel to what I suffered. How can I be anti-gay? Because gay people suffer from the same type of uh, uh, prejudicial thinking that I suffered from. And uh, I've tried to expand my knowledge by having, I would argue, a more internationalist outlook. So rather than becoming prejudiced, in any, I've tried to counter it in every single way. So just, sorry, to, to kind of digress a bit, but how do you challenge prejudice now? Well, I mean, again, I'm, now I'm going to be a complete hypocrite, right? Okay, and talk about racism, because it's my area, right? And, and, like, well, the one thing that we've not really mentioned here or touched upon it, I think Joe touched upon it, is white privilege. And, um, how, in my opinion, to challenge racism and forget other types of prejudice is that you have to, first of all, recognise that white privilege exists. Right, okay. Now, the problem with that, then, okay, is that the white structures are not going to give up white privilege and individual white people are not going to give that up as well for, for if you want to call it, neoliberal reasons, for personal reasons, etc. I have what, I've published articles with white authors about racism and they, and they don't recognise some of the racism which I've experienced in academia. You know, and sorry, they recognise it, but are unwilling to do anything about it. Sorry, because it would affect their careers. You know, and it's the it's the microaggressions and it's the white privilege when it comes to racism, which really needs to be challenged. Right? Okay, how do you do that? I don't know. Now, it's like I mean, and the weird thing is, is that a lot of people who wrote about white privilege the idea of what's called critical race theory, a lot of those writers were actually white people in America recognising that they had power, basically. They, and it was actually a lot of white authors recognising that. But how do you, uh, how do you what you call, uh, tell a, a white working class guy who hasn't got a job that, that he is in some way more privileged than me, a doctor? It's quite, it's quite difficult uh, uh, to sort of break through. And, like, um, I mean, I've spent the last 20-odd 20, 20 years researching it, right? And um, I haven't got a clue. I'm sorry. You know, I haven't got a clue. You know what I mean? If, I mean, if I had my way, we'd just, uh, you know, we'd uh, just dance to James Brown. It might be better, you know, but... And let's see. Well, I see a few, a few, few little points of that. First one is actually I was hoping, I hoping you, you did I, I have an idea because I don't either. And, actually, I was talking about someone with this the other day at a conference... Um, a kind of an anti-Islamophobia organisation we work with. And they said part of the problem... And they, this conversation of white privilege came up, and part of the conversation was, how, how do you... Uh, what language do you use to go back into these white communities and tell them about how, uh, how privileged they are? And I was trying to explain, explain to this woman that um, if I knocked on a door in Dagenham or Burnley or Stoke to someone who hasn't had a job in ten years, where the schools are a mess, where the hospitals have been smashed where globalisation has ripped through these communities and turn around and say, don't you realise how lucky you are because you're not black? That's not going to work, mm -hmm. right? Um, and this is the, one of these actual things where we try and, you know, what, what things can we deal with as a movement, really? Because some of these things that are white privilege structures, etc., the, the problems of white decline, are really, really difficult to tackle on that level. And I, I haven't got an answer there. But the, the other two things I've very briefly wanted to mention is you're absolutely right, there's not racism, there's racisms. There's also we can't differentiate between just, say, racism and homophobia or racism mm -hmm. and uh, sexism, etc. These things are intrinsically linked, actually. If you look at in terms of rates of attack, say, on Muslims, uh, women are disproportionately affected there. 
If you look at uh, racism against black men, again, gay men are disproportionately sometimes affected there. All these things are interconnected, all these prejudices, and also none of them are isolated. Quite often we see a trajectory of activism that goes, uh, especially in the last 10, 15 years, people come gone from no politics into Islamophobia, into anti-Muslim activism, and come out the other side within a relatively short period as a more traditional far-right activist that's engaged in anti-Semitism, etc. Um, these things are all interconnected. And the other thing I was actually going to mention, implicit prejudice, again, I absolutely agree, just a very brief example of that, is quite often in the anti-Muslim movements, you'll hear people talk about saying, how can feminists like Muslims or accept Muslims because of the way Muslims treat our women? Right. And this, but this is the language you'll hear all the time. There's no, and, there's no, and they completely mean that. They genuinely believe they're being feminist by being anti-Muslim without ever recognising the notion of fact that they're within, implicit in their statement is the ownership of these women. You know? um, so that was just a little example of this kind of implicit prejudice. Yeah, and a minimisation of the violence enacted against women by white men. Right. So, yeah, picking up on the point about privilege, which I think is... is immensely important um, and very challenging like it's very hard to know there's definitely context in which talking about white privilege for example is going to have counterproductive results but that doesn't mean it's not a hugely crucial concept and one thing I think can be challenging is pointing out to people who are very fixated on one kind of oppression and, and challenging it and of conceiving of themselves as very much you know on the side of good in that sense pointing out that they're actually unwittingly you know, perpetuating other kinds of oppression. So pointing out, you know, as, um, as women of colour and, and black feminist scholars have done, pointing out the, the ways in which race, racial prejudice can go unchecked in feminist contexts. Like, that, again, is a difficult conversation, but I think a hugely important one. So this notion of, of privilege, of examining privilege, I think... I think, as, 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 as has been pointed out, oppression is never just racism or just sexism or just economic. It's always, you know, very often all of those at once. And they're not just kind of stacked on top of each other. They're really inflecting each other and kind of mutually constituting each other. Um, you can't just kind of add them on, on, onto each other. It's not that simple. Similarly, I think privilege is like that. So um, I think when we think of ourselves as being privileged we shouldn't just think of ourselves as being privileged in like one particular way at a time, but think of the ways in which all the different kinds of privilege that, privileges that we have are kind of interacting to um, condition the kinds of arguments we're going to be receptive to and the kinds of arguments that we're going to find, find challenging and, and, and want to kind of have a knee-jerk you know, negative response to. I think that's important as well. Yeah, and I guess I'd say on that, that I guess there's a difference between identifying a problem and then also trying to find a lexicon with which to engage with people about it. Mm. Um, there is a difference there. You know, we can accept the real importance of white privilege, for example, without, uh, and then attempt to say that we have to find a way to engage with people in these communities say that, without saying those words, perhaps. Could you perhaps sort of give a couple of examples of how you tried to do that with, <laughs> with hope, not hate? Um, well, actually, I, I say a lot of what we do is about attempting to go into communities that feel powerless, and try to empower them on very small issues, not necessarily these grand issues of race or power, etc. But it could be down to a saying that you can affect change in your tower block. It could be about saying um, people that have turned around and say the problem is is that we have no power, no one listens to us, we're ignored by everyone. The only people who knock on our door is the British National Party, and they say the reason why this is everything's so shit is because of black people that have moved in. And actually, what we've found time and time again is that if you say even organise round a getting the lift fixed in your tower block, and then that, that's successful. They then turn around and say, well, what's the next problem? Let's bring in our MP and let's talk about 
the lighting in our streets, etc. You start to build stronger communities that feel that they can affect change themselves, and they become stronger and less susceptible to the lies that some of these people will knock on their doors and perpetrate. Um, so it's not necessarily about just talking about these larger ideas. It could be some things that are not necessarily directly related, you know, or, or, don't, or don't ostensibly seem to be directly related. Yeah. Amir, you wanted to come in? Yeah. <clears throat> I guess it kind of feels that like we don't have a clue here. And we, don't <laughs> know how, we don't know how to challenge kind of racism a wee bit. It sounds a bit depressing. So, I mean, it, it, to try to counter that, right, um, I just thought of, like, you know, I mean, uh, I think, in a sense, and again, I'm going to contradict myself, is that I feel more comfortable now in 2017 than I did in 1988 or 89. And, like, you know, uh, I don't feel as threatened as much, dis- uh, certainly physically or verbally in the street. Yes, I, I do feel threatened culturally and politically, but not, but not, not like, uh, in the same way. And I do think that people are challenging racism, um, I'm a Glasgow Celtic fan, the only club in Europe that's uh, uh, undefeated domestically, by the way. You should all write that down and take that away from today's talk. It's the most important thing. Right, OK. But, like, in 1990, 1990, I think it was, Mark Walters, a black guy, played for Rangers against Celtic, and I was there. And there was Glasgow Celtic fans who's, who, who came from an Irish Catholic uh, tradition in monkey costumes throwing bananas at them. That's what they were actually doing. The current team in Celtic right now has got Muslim players, Israeli players, black players, obviously white players, European players, etc. Right? Just recently, they raised money for, for, for uh, the West Bank and, and Palestinians. A couple of years ago, they raised money for a, for a, a Thai orphanage, etc. Uh, I go to Celtic Park now, and I feel like, like nobody is going to turn around and call me any names whatsoever, apart from, can you sit down if I'm standing up, you know, in their way. And I do think that, would you call, that there is room for optimism, you know what I mean? I mean, for every, for every time that Donald Trump turns around and says something stupid, you know, which is usually every two seconds, every two seconds people, people do, do go and challenge it, you know, and I think that that's, we have to realise that, you know, whilst we might not have the answers, you know, you know uh, uh, other people certainly do, you know. I mean, I'd say on that, optimistic but, but vigilant, maybe. Mm. I mean, I'd also actually say my Sunday league team would be undefeated in Scotland, but, I mean... That's, that, that's <laughs> prejudice. Um, but no, yeah, optimistic but vigilant. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely right to say something. There has been huge developments in the last 50 years in Western Europe and, and North America. The things have come on a huge amount of way, and, and I think we should have to celebrate those things and look at the things that have been successful. Um, and, you know, um, whilst continuing to be utterly vigilant about the fact that there's a huge amount of way you know, to go. Can I make one? Yes. I think one thing we haven't talked about is how prejudice is, is changing and responding to trends in society. So I think one of the interesting things is uh, the role of, of the internet here, actually. And I think it's a double-edged sword in the sense that we pro- can probably all think of examples of how the internet can give a voice to you know, extremely prejudiced organisations and individuals. And we often think of the internet in those terms, but actually psychologists often say that you know, one way to reduce prejudice is a very simple thing, is simply bringing people together from different backgrounds so that you know, they, they, they learn about people from different backgrounds, whereas 
and I think one of the good things about the internet, one of the interesting things, is that it, it is this double-edged sword. At the one end, it gives a voice to the far right, but actually it also gives individuals an opportunity to encounter people from very different backgrounds as well. And one of the interesting things, I think, then, about the future is the degree to which you know, we might see a reduction in prejudice through this, this kind of mechanism of you know, people going online on a night and, and, and chatting to somebody on the other side of the world and so on, blind to the ethnicity or the, the, the national background of that person. I think there is some hope there, actually, in, in the technology. Po- po- yeah, possibly, actually, and I hadn't, I hadn't considered it. I mean, one of the, actually the major problems I see in the internet, what it, what it does is it has lowered the social cost of activism in this area. So, for instance, say you became a National Front activist in the 70s or a BNP activist in the 90s or in the early 90s. Um, an activist meant going to meetings and there was kind of militant anti-fascism that might engage with that. It meant standing on the street and selling newspapers. It meant your friends knowing that you were engaged in this politics. Now you can put a picture of a frog as your picture on, on the internet and you can send a Jew jokes about the Holocaust and it's almost impossible to find out who this is. So in some senses the internet has lowered the social cost of engaging in prejudice. So that's the downside. But yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of the possible upsides of greater engagement. I'm going to have to stop because we want some audience questions. There's only about 10 minutes uh, left and I can see uh, a huge number of, of hands. Uh, there's a lady uh, in a leather jacket about halfway up. Then we'll go to the gentleman uh, here and then the gentleman in the second <laughs> row. And that's, let's, let's, see how, let's see how we go with that, I think. Um, so I think there are two parts to my question. Uh, firstly, do you think that, um, does the panel think that uh, it is beneficial for the majority to discriminate against minorities? And um, secondly, should we ever uh, embrace this utilitarian perspective, and if not, why? Thank you. Let's go to our next, uh, which was yeah, down here. If prejudice is a form of overgeneralization, then what interests me is how is it that some groups can resist being defined in a certain way? The financial crisis, for example, was caused largely by white men in suits, but we somehow never react to them in that same aversive manner as we might, say, to a group of young black men. So how is it that some people can resist being defined in a prejudicial manner? Let's go to our next, uh, which was, yet yeah, the gentleman in the third row, sorry. <clears throat> I'm going to suggest that there is uh, a possible solution to the problem which is staring us in the face, and that is actually through education, uh, formal and informal, from the very earliest stages. The main problem is when people are exposed to potential prejudices of age and overcome them, and then later life are exposed to new prejudices, which could be to do with population migration and so on. But in principle, having dealt with something at an early age, it might make them uh, in a better position to deal with these things that come along later. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, let's uh, see if we can squeeze in uh, a couple more. There's a lady uh, to my left here. And there's a lady as well, right at the back. Um, yes, thank you. Do you see any consequences of Brexit over prejudice? Um, and do you have some hopes? 
Thank you. And the lady right at the back. Hi, thank you very much. So um, my, I wanted to throw this out to the panel. So tonight we talked a lot about the emphasis of the individual and maybe the experience of prejudice needs to be drawn out more, pulled back to be viewed on a macro level. So for instance, I think it's maybe not about wanting to be white, but maybe things to be at better um, as a person of colour and as a whole. And also the experience of um, prejudice at an individual level, maybe there's a risk of perpetuating even more prejudice. Like tonight I think we've heard disparaging terms such as oriental or chinky. I don't think I heard that in any other context other than in relation to the self. So my point is prejudice experience on an individual level, maybe something needs to be addressed in how that individual experience maybe does not need to contribute in a kind of reckless or brazen way to perpetuate even more instances of discrimination. Thanks. Um, okay, I do want to give the panel some time to answer some of these questions, so I think we'd better throw it open. Sorry, can, can I just go first quickly? Yeah. Right. yeah. I think the gentleman there, uh, yeah, the, the financial crisis was caused by white men in suits, but they've got power. You know, so no one's going to turn around and say it was blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys who caused it. They've got the power. You know, it's you know, and I agree with you. It, that's it, it was done. That's that's what caused it. You know, but they've got the power. It's easy. It's easy to blame, or you know, global. It's easy to blame uh, 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 less powerful groups. It's as simple as that, right? And then just the, the lady at the, the, the top there, right? I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I quite understand what you're saying there, right, okay, but like, if you're saying that if, if, if I've been called a Paki, I shouldn't say that word because that will encourage more racism. N no, I, I don't know if that's what you mean, right, because if you're saying that well, I'm perpetrating it then, well, I have been called a Paki, I've been called a Chinky, I've been called a nigger, I've been called a darky, I've been called all of these terms, in different times, you know, and I think it's important to understand the reason why I was called these terms is because of prejudicial thinking on, on the parts of other people. And then what I'm hoping, what this is trying to do is expose the stupidity of that and how that affects people. You know, and, you know, and if there's any other way that I can turn around and say, by the way, I've been called racist names but not use them, let me know. You know, you know, because I don't know. I think it's I using especially a feminist background and idea of subjectivity and personal experience. Right, I could turn around here and go, racism is the is the whole idea of having a a, a belief based upon my, the colour of my skin. Well, you know, yeah, that means something. But what I do know is that when I, when I lecture about racism, and 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 especially hearing non-white students talking about their experiences of of it, right. It hits home to other people who've got white privilege. They kind of think, geez, I never, ever thought of that. You know what I mean? And, like, if there was another way of doing it, I mean, ideally, you know, in an ideal world, it wouldn't matter. But it does matter that I've been called these names. To me, it matters. You know, it really, really does matter that I've been called these names. You know what I mean? And, 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 and like um, Marco said, how racism has changed over time. I can remember, I, I'm old enough to remember when, when Band-Aid and, and the Ethiopian crisis, and I was called an Ethiopian. 
that's what I was called when that was happening. I can remember when Roots was around the first time and being called Kunta Kinte. That's, that's, and I'm like, geez, I mean, I mean, you know, and, and I was even, I was even called Bruce Lee. That's in Glasgow. You know, I've been called all these names. Right, okay, now, it shows you the idea of prejudicial thinking. It shows you how um, stupid it is, how, uh, how, and uh, I can't get the word out, how persuasive it is, how, how innate it is. And, like, if I knew another way, and I have been lecturing, I did my, I've been lecturing this since 1994, right, so that's, what, 21 years or something. If I knew another way, uh, I would do it. But I think, and especially speaking to my white friends, when I, talk, when, I, when I talk to them about some of my personal experiences, that's when it hits home for them. That's when it hits home, you know, really for them. I don't know if that's what you meant. I'm sorry you know, if that's not what you meant. But I think it's important to recognise those phrases because they do exist. We can't ignore them. Just We've got about three minutes and sorry, four sorry remaining questions. So if the rest of the panel can be as brief as, as possible, that would be great. Shall I go just yes. quickly on, on just the gentleman who was talking about why weren't uh, the bankers and so on um, targeted, I think... I don't want to bang on incessantly about the media, but I often ask individuals, you know, why are you not scared of being struck by lightning? Because people seem to be scared of being caught in a terrorist event. But, of course, you're much more likely to be struck by lightning statistically. And, of course, the reason people are scared of being caught in a terrorist event is because we're bombarded uh, in the media with the terrorist threat. And, And... this is the very simple reason why some groups are able to control the media, some groups are targeted in the media, and it's a, it's a very straightforward relationship. Brexit, uh, a, a lady said, what's Brexit doing? I think we've already seen what Brexit's doing in terms of a rise in hate crime against people of certain backgrounds in a fairly in- indiscriminate manner. I think if we have a very large divorce settlement, as the media like to call it, for Brexit, I think we're in for even larger rises in hate crime. So I think Brexit is, is a worry for discrimination. So... Um Thank you to the, the person who raised the, the point about education. Um, I think that's very, very important, injects a much-needed much, much optimism. Uh, just to bring a little bit of pessimism back, I completely agree that uh, education of the kind that was described would be, go a very long way to counteracting prejudice, but I also think that the existence of prejudice is a very, very significant barrier to introducing and enacting that kind of education. So there's a bit of a vicious circle there. I'm not quite sure what to do about that. On Brexit, yes, I think... I would agree, um, obviously, about the, the rise in hate crime. The statistic I have is up. Is hate crime was up 41% from the previous July, but I'm sure there's different statistics around. But if that's anywhere near right, then it's huge. And one thing I think Brexit did is it performed a legitimating function because there was so much racist rhetoric associated with the Leave campaign that regardless of what the actual intention of any particular Leave voters was, the effect of that decision was to legitimate that kind of racist rhetoric and, and to signal the acceptability of prejudice. And I I think that's, that a lot more needs to be done to counteract that. And very, very finally, very briefly on the, the question, um, the question at the back I took to be at least partly about the idea that, you know, 
surely prejudiced experience on an individual level can be a very grievous wrong without us having to invoke kind of its broader knock-on effects for structures just in terms of its impact on a particular individual. I took that to be part of the question, and if that's right, then I'd, I'd very strongly agree with that. I suppose what I would say is that it seems to me that often the harm that has happened when, for example, someone is called a racial epithet um, is actually that harm functions in part by invoking sort of the pre-existing structural discriminations that are already happening. That's why, you know, if I invent a derogatory term right now for Justin Bieber fans, it's just not going to have that weight and that force behind it. But I didn't, I didn't in any way intend to minimise the negative impact, the profound negative impact of individual instances of prejudice on individuals just considered as individuals. I think that's very important as well. Yeah, um... Uh, yeah, again, I'll very, very quickly, very briefly on what, on what you were saying, actually. I mean, I can't talk from a personal experience. Um, but I do agree, actually, we can't not use a lot of these words. When we're quoting, for example, especially people on the far right and fascism, uh, quite, quite often newspapers will turn around and say, can you put, say, you know, N star, star, star? And it's like, well, that's not what they said. You know, so I think there is an issue around sanitising racism or any form of prejudice uh, that we have to always be very, very careful of. Um, I'm not sure I quite grasped the original question about majority versus minority. Of course, I'm not sure that prejudice is always a majority versus a minority. Look at uh, the British in India might be an example there. Uh, one last plug for Hope Not Hate. We do a huge amount of education work in schools, so I thought I would just get that plug in there. Finally, on Brexit, actually. Brexit, yes, I mean, I agree with everyone, uh, what everyone says, so I'm not going to reiterate it. I actually think that we can probably view it as part of a process of normalisation that has been going on pre-Brexit, actually, and that we're seeing that we can extrapolate out beyond Britain, actually. I think we can put it in a broader context, Brexit. Well, well, there's lots of good reasons to leave the EU that lots of people could argue. There's no question I agree that it became a legitimisation of certain prejudices and views, and I think we should place them in a broader context that looks happening what's happening in North America, what's also happening in parts of Europe. I think what we're seeing, actually, is rather, you know, pessimistically to finish on this is a, a something of a threat and a crisis towards the very notion of a liberal de- democracy and the progressive norms that follow from those ideas. I think Brexit should be placed in that context. I think after many, many years of feeling that we were moving in one direction uh, towards ever greater equality, ever greater progress, ever less prejudice, I very much fear that we are now clinging on to those pillars of progress um, and attempting to keep hold of them. So I think Brexit should be viewed in a much broader context. Well, in that case, I think we will have to finish on a pessimistic or perhaps vigilant note. Uh, Thank you very much to our audience for excellent questions and to our panel for their responses.